So try to look like you're having a good time. Okay, so um, we have, we have uh, I'm in Los Angeles and I'm, I'm about to explain uh, the intellectual, the philosophical news about uh, the paper I'm going to deliver at the University of Florida. So we'll introduce everyone. Maybe you can just say what your name is and how much you plan to give me after the talk. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Hi, I'm Brisa. Who just graduated from USC, one of the best schools in America. Divya. She's a regular. Robin. Golam Gilasa. Horatia. And that gentleman over there. Tyrone. <laughs> so. Uh, we're here in Los Angeles, and we're, I'm going to have a little darshan, as we call it in this business. And um, so I thought I'd invite everybody to participate. Uh, I'm going to be giving a paper at the University of Florida. I'm one of the keynote speakers. I just bragged. Um, at this big national conference on science, consciousness in science. Consciousness is kind of a uh, kind of it's a dog whistle for religion. So um, I thought I'd tell you some things I plan to talk about. Uh, for those of you who listen to my lectures, uh, it makes me feel good. It does wonders my self-esteem. Just kidding. But um, I've explained many times, many lectures, how we live in a bi-dimensional universe. To explain what I mean by that, um, I'll give one example from history. Uh, Darwin in 1859 published Origin of Species which was a big sensation. It immediately kind of provoked this huge battle, cultural war, uh, especially because uh, there was a gentleman named Thomas Huxley who was known even in his time as uh, Darwin's bulldog. He was, very, he was a very prominent, one of the most prominent scientists in England and, and in education, actually. In fact, he was head of the Royal Society for Science and very prominent figure, but he was just sort of this tenacious, uh, in-your-face, take-no-prisoners polemicist who was also kind of atheistic and wanted to really free people from religion. Uh, I'm going to cover sort of rapidly in my talk the history of the relationship between science and religion. It's a talk I gave at Stanford several years ago, if you want to look it up. But, but um, of course, up until around 1600, or up until, let's say, the 1500s, um, everyone followed. Can you turn off that light at the back? Penny saves, penny earned. Um, Aristotle, ever since Thomas Aquinas in, in, the, in the high Middle Ages, the end of the, just before the Renaissance, um, Aristotle was kind of like the house philosopher for... Um, for the Catholic Church. At a time when there was only one church in Europe, really, certainly Western Europe and, and Central Europe, which is the Catholic Church. That's all right. So um, Thomas Aquinas had sort of sanitized Aristotle in the sense that they say sometimes Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica actually sort of baptized Aristotle. He took Aristotle's system and he um, sort of Christianized it. And that became the official doctrine of eventually the Catholic Church. It was controversial at the time because Aristotle had one enormous disqualification, which is that he was a pagan. He had never been baptized. 
course, he appeared about 300, 400 years before Jesus, but never mind. So they kind of gave him a pass on that, on those grounds. So this was a revival. This was kind of like the proto-Renaissance. I mean, I think you have to look at Thomas Aquinas around, I guess he's in the 1200s or something. Yeah, and, and, and in the next century, the Renaissance is going to begin. So it's kind of like the proto-Renaissance where people are starting to think, well, wait a second, we don't really have to be stuck in this Monty Python movie. You know, because you know the Dark Ages, and and it it it's not a coincidence that the Renaissance began in uh, in Italy because Italy was, especially Rome, had been the center of Western civilization, and so it's just like, for example, there's a lot more interest in America in, let's say, Native American societies, and a lot more college courses taught on it than, let's say, in Luxembourg or Japan, or even, let's say, in Argentina. They're not going to teach that many courses on the native inhabitants of North America because, you know, it's our country. And the same thing, if you go to other countries, you'll find they teach a lot of things about their history that aren't so interesting to people in other countries. So for the people in Italy, this was our civilization. These were our ancestors. I won't use, you know, chauvinist, sexist terms like forefathers. So, um, but anyway, so, so, so the Renaissance actually began in Italy. And uh, really before, I mean, generally the Renaissance is said to have begun around 1300s, but um, by the 1200s, I think Thomas Aquinas is already, as I say, baptizing Aristotle. He was looking to Aristotle for wisdom about how to present Christ, the revelation. And so the idea that a pagan uh, by the way, uh, yeah, what I said, Thomas Aquinas, I'm a guru, so I don't make mistakes. And when I apparently do, it's the mistake of the listener. So no matter what kind of evidence the listener has. So Thomas Aquinas was born in 1225 and died in 1274. Not a long life. He died actually at the age of 49. Anyway. Uh, so if you think of the Dark Ages, Europe doesn't know what the hell's going on anywhere else. Like for example, uh, as late as Vasco da Gama, that Portuguese explorer who, who, who went to India, and uh, I'll give you a date because you're all very eager to know the date for Vasco da Gama. He basically around 1500, around 1500, he went to India. And I swear to God, as late as 1500, this is like, we're already like sort of, not at the end of the Renaissance, but already kind of sort of like, you know, it's a third quarter. If the Renaissance was a football game, it's a third quarter. And so, so as late as 1500, everyone in Europe thought that everyone in India was Christian. And the reason is because uh, first of all, Europeans would never actually go to India, and most people couldn't read, and uh, they didn't know what was going on in other parts of the world, because there was a legend that a, an apostle of Jesus went to India, and of course, it was typical hagiography. We have kind of these exaggerated stories of miracles performed by saints. Never having like that in, among us. So, so there was a story that an apostle went to India, apostle of Jesus, and just converted everybody. So Vasco da Gama went to India. He landed in the southwest 
on the southwest coast, sort of below Goa. He saw real, you know, power, real estate opportunities there in Goa. Kind of, you know, very far seen. Just kidding. But anyway, so he landed on the, in the southwest coast of India, and there was a little temple there. It's interesting because in India, unlike certainly unlike North America, you don't have all the major cities on the coast, which was all commercial, of course. And in Europe, all the major cities are on rivers, which is also commercial I mean, in communication. So India was kind of like for a long time had been this very inward looking culture. And so there just weren't any important centers on the coast or cities, which is one reason the Europeans kind of were able to get a foothold because no one cared that much what's going out going on on the coast. The Indians were obviously not medieval surfers. And so anyway, so Vasco da Gama got there and he found this little mandir, this little temple of Shakti, the goddess. And he assumed it was a temple of Mary, the Virgin Mary. So he and all his men, he was coming from Portugal. The Renaissance had not reached Portugal. Portugal was like, it was kind of like a place where, you know, sort of flat earthers. And so, um, he, he thought he was worshiping the Virgin Mary, and then after a while he realized it's not the Virgin Mary, it's one of these pagan gods, so he just did the only decent thing to do. He sort of, you know, killed everybody and then moved on, but you gotta love colonialism. So, anyway, um, what, what was I getting at? So, so you have this revival so people didn't know about other places. That was my point. They had no idea what was going on in India. They thought the Indians were all Christian. And that shows how much they knew. And so, um, ironically, one of the ways that Europe first kind of had more contact with the world and started to, these the seeds were planted for more of a global vision of what the world really is, was due to uh, this, this horrific event, the Crusades. You know, as evil as the Crusades were, and there was a lot of evil to go around in the Crusades, still, they were having contact with non-Europeans, and they were, and the Islamic Renaissance, of course, began long before the European Renaissance, because about, you know, a thousand years ago, 900 years ago, whatever, actually up until, who was it? Uh, I think it was Attila the Hun kind of messed up everything. Uh... Everything was exactly the opposite. I mean, the terrorists were all the Western Europeans. If you look at the Hundred Years' War, it was just English terrorism against France, and they called it that. I mean, they were proud to be terrorists. And so, and, and the sort of the more advanced civilization, more cosmopolitan, more learned, was the Islamic world. Unfortunately, not the Muslims that invaded India, but more to the West. Anyway, so... Um, so if you look at the relationship back then between science and religion, first of all, uh, religion totally dominated everything. The church, you know, the Roman Catholic church just dominated. I mean, not only did they tell everybody what they could think and couldn't think about God or the soul or the most important things of life, but uh, to use a phrase that was very common back then, the church would tell you how to go to heaven and how the heavens go. In other words, if you want to know astronomy, 
or if you want to know geology, or if you want to know anything, because virtually every school in Europe was a church school. There was no such thing as a secular school. All the great universities in Europe were founded by the church. That goes back to Charlemagne, that's another story. So uh, there's no secular education, there's no such thing. There are only church schools, there are only church colleges. And so the church will tell you how to go to heaven and how the heavens go. And uh, so what happened? Uh, what went wrong here um, with this nice little picture? Well, um, someone did something really irresponsible, wasn't thinking, and invented the printing press. So that was like in the 1470s or something. So, by the way, all of these things I'm about to describe happened immediately before, during, or immediately afterwards the advent of Lord Chaitanya. So literally, when, around the time Lord Chaitanya came, the whole Western world totally was transformed. So the printing press. And so naturally, if you're living back then, what are you going to print? Three guesses, you know, the Bible. It's like, obviously, that's what you're going to print. And you're not going to print Fox News, you're going to print the Bible. So, so they did print the Bible. And then you have Martin Luther. In the church, of course, monopolies tend to be fat and corrupt, and that's just what monopolies tend to do. If you've got the only hardware store in town, and the next hardware store is 70 miles down the road, you don't like my hardware? You don't like my prices? Sure, drive 140 miles round trip, save a few bucks. No? Uh, you know, I'll be with you. No, I can't talk to you right. So it's, so monopoly. So, so the church had a monopoly. And um, so therefore science was all nice because everyone, I mean, there's no question of opposing the church unless you were, had a very strong death wish. So the, there was no, there was no question of, of opposing the church. And the church was really managing the Renaissance. That's something you have to understand. The church was managing the Renaissance, even though it was a rebirth, the Renaissance, it was a rebirth of Europe, of, of pagan culture. But, you know, the people weren't, at least all of them weren't idiots, and they could see that actually they were really smart back then. I mean, they had incredible literature. They had, you know, all kinds, fiction, nonfiction, essayists. I mean, really brilliant. One thing you have to understand, classical antiquity, the Greco-Roman civilization, those people, if you actually read what they wrote, you get to know them, they're much more like us than what came later. If you look at after the fall of Rome, the Dark Ages, you know, the lower middle, uh, middle Ages, high Middle Ages, even the Renaissance, really Renaissance, there are some ways in which the people back in antiquity were really like us. They talked like us, they thought like us. I mean, it was very interesting. And um, so, so the, this Renaissance began, it began in Florence, Italy in the 1300s, people like Petrarch and Dante, and then it really started to catch fire and people started to realize that this world is not just sort of dark and gloomy and useless and our bodies are really nasty and ew, but actually, you know, there's a lot of beauty in the world. There's a lot of beauty in nature. There's human life being very interesting. God gave us the power to think and they, they began to access all these old classical ideas like the logos, which was very popular back in antiquity. The idea that logos, you know, logic. Logos means sort of a rational explanation of something. 
like like physiology, geology, biology, and so on. And so um, they were rediscovering all this. And so the logos means that God. It's very interesting. They they had this very strong idea. Pagans, by the way, there were monotheistic pagans before Christianity. There were actually monotheists. There were anyway. I won't get started on that of the you know, overall effect that that period of history had on the world. But, but anyway, so they were, um, they saw God, many of them, as the supremely rational being. I mean, God is kind and all that, but God is also supremely rational. It, it, it was like, and, and there's a distinction I make between philosophical monotheism and tribal monotheism. In Europe, there was philosophical monotheism. And obviously, if you're a philosophical monotheist, and so am I, you know, I may call it Krishna, someone else may call it something else, but we have the same philosophy. And so if what you care about is philosophy, and you meet another philosophical monotheist, yeah, we can really get along. But if you are a tribal monotheist, then it's very different. Tribal monotheism means my God can beat up your God. That this is the God of our tribe. This is the God of our people. It's sectarian. It's fanatical. It's not concerned with philosophy as much as it's concerned with sort of unique historical events. Philosophy is universal. For example, if I believe there's an eternal soul and you believe that, we can be in different religions and different times, historical periods. We can be in different parts of the world, but we're doing the same thing. We're connected. Whereas if you say the son of God appeared, uh, you know, at this particular time in this place, and I say Krishna appeared in Mathura, the nature of history is that everything happens only one time, unless you're into some of these cuckoo ideas of eternal return. But, but anyway, so historical events are unique. Philosophical ideas are universal, they're saying. And so there's philosophical, and, and so if you look at the, this is the point I'm gonna make in my talk actually, that one of the very strong cultural components of ancient civilization was syncretism. Syncretism, which means that we're worshiping the same God with different names. This was like this was like the culture. There was, in fact, something called the interpretation, interpretazione, interpretaciono of uh, Greco and Romano, the Greek interpretation of the Greek translation of the Roman translation. What it means is that when the Greeks or the Romans came upon other civilizations, they would figure out the correspondence. In other words, oh, uh, you say Zeus, okay, we say Jupiter. In other words, they, they would match up their pantheon with the culture they had come in contact with. For the Romans, it was absolutely necessary because you try managing like, you know, dozens and dozens of countries, each one with dozens of religions. And it's, and so the Romans, it, you know, they didn't rule simply by brute force. They were actually intelligent and they understood that there's like tens of millions of them and far fewer of us. It's like, if you're an elephant rider, you don't really want to get the elephant very mad. And so the Romans had this policy of syncretism. It was like the carrot and the stick. The Romans had two things. They were syncretistic, 
they were tolerant, they promoted, you know, any religion that wasn't just really weird, which is what they thought of Christianity on the plain way. Um, on the other hand, if someone did rebel, they would really make them an example. They, if, if someone did rebel against Rome, they would hit you so hard that everyone else would think, hey, you want to rebel? No, nope, I don't want to rebel. You want to rebel? No, nope, I don't want to rebel. So that, that was kind of like the carrot stick strategy that Rome used. So they had the syncretism. Alexander the Great was another one. He actually wanted to unite East and West. Of course, he hadn't read Rudyard Kipling. East is East and West is West. So, um, so you have this very cosmopolitan, religiously tolerant society with this syncretism, because after all, it's, it's Mediterranean Vedic culture, naturally. And so, uh, so what happened, then you get this, I mean, in some ways, I really don't want to be offensive or to anyone, but kind of like this poison pill, which was Middle Eastern fanaticism came into Europe. And everyone was just kind of like, oh my God. Because when you start getting this toxic language, like we worship a living God, you worship a dead God. We have a true religion, you have a false religion. And these are people who for centuries and centuries, oh, your God is named such and such. Let me figure out what that corresponds to in my philosophy. Because where there's only one God. We're all worshiping the same God. So a civilization that just took it for granted that there's one God and, and that the people just have different ways of worshiping that one God. And here these like really hot and heavy people come from the Middle East saying that you're worshiping dead gods and everything you're doing is false and you're going to hell. People are like looking at each other, like seriously? Anyway, I mean, how Christianity actually spread has to do with the fact the Roman Empire started to have major problems and everything kind of got, anyway. But, so, before the Christian the Christians being adopted by Constantine in the fourth century, um, no one really fought religious wars. They really didn't have religious wars. They had political wars and economic, you know, they'd fight for the sort of, you know, old fashioned reasons like greed, lust for power, and all that kind of stuff, but not religious wars. The Romans weren't fighting to bring Jupiter to other people. That's not why they were fighting. In fact, there was a tremendous amount of borrowing. Actually, uh, you know, what the Romans would have considered foreign religions actually flourished in Rome. And if you look at a lot of, in fact, the same thing of Christianity. I mean, who's that, Osiris? I mean, I mean, the idea that God sent his son uh, to earth to be martyred, to be killed, to pay for the sins of the world. After so many days, his son rose into heaven. That was from Egypt. That had been going on in Egypt for centuries. But anyway, so there's a lot of borrowing going on, and, and that's a whole issue of what happened when, for various historical reasons, I explained many times, the, the Jesus movement, which during the life of Jesus and during you know the years immediately after Jesus, was composed exclusively of Jewish people, and uh, Roman historians had no religious interest in it. Everyone just took it for granted that it's a, it's a Jewish movement. 
because Judaism was much more diverse back then. In fact, the brother of Jesus, James, was an Orthodox Jew who went to the synagogue every day, and he was an apostle. So anyway, there's all this borrowing and sharing, and even the idea that of, of giving Jesus an upgrade that, okay, actually he's God, uh, that was another pagan thing. As pagans took over the Jesus movement, they paganized it. And so among pagans, no one would take your religion seriously if your leader didn't become a god when he died. In fact, um, any important person became a god when he died. Julius Caesar, the Roman Senate would officially vote that someone was now a god. And people would have deities and put the deities on their altar and everything. But anyway, so, so if, you, if you look at the relationship between religion and what you call science or proto-science or just philosophy, because after all, science used to be a branch of philosophy. That's why if you get a PhD in biology, it's called a doctor of philosophy. You get a PhD in, let's say, geology, it's a doctor of philosophy. Why? Because philosophy meant originally just an advanced study in any branch of human wisdom or human knowledge. And so, uh, so originally, all the sciences, what we would call the sciences, were, they called it natural philosophy. That's what it was called up until fairly recently. Those things were all called natural philosophy. So, um, so the relationship, I mean, everyone, so getting back to the point of Aristotle, going back to the Renaissance now, which is, again, people trying to revive this pagan culture, which in many ways was obviously much more advanced than what the Europeans had in the Dark Ages. And so, um, so Aquinas looked at Aristotle and he had this total, oh my God moment, because Aristotle was really smart and the father of modern logic and just laid it all out. And so Aristotle was a total rock star in Europe. And even before that, he had been the big star of the Islamic Renaissance, which came earlier. In fact, to show you an example of the Islamic Renaissance, I mean, all the words that start with al, like algebra, alcohol, alkaline, that's all Arabic. All means the, you know, it's like alkaline, algebra, uh, alcohol, that's all Arabic. Because they were actually the leaders in science. But in any case, so, um, so you have this Renaissance coming, and so the relationship of science and religion, or science and philosophy and reason, everyone just followed Aristotle, because Aristotle had one book he called The Physics, meant just you know, what we call material science. And then he had another book, which his, his followers, when they published it, they called it The Metaphysics, because meta means beyond or after. And because The Metaphysics dealt with Aristotle's conception of God as an unmoved mover, and that's so Aristotle. It's like God, which fulfills a logical requirement. Okay, the argument from contingency, which actually begins, there's a, the argument for God. Contingent means it depends. Like if I say, are you coming tomorrow? Well, that's contingent. It means, well, it depends on something else. And so the argument from contingency is that in this universe, everything that we know about, everything, whether they're distant galaxies or your toenail. Anyway, 
everything, everything we know about in this universe is contingent. It came from something else. Everything that we know about in the universe, let's not, not, we won't talk about souls here, let's talk about empirical things. Anything you can detect with your senses in the universe uh, is in the middle of a causal chain. It came from something else and it's going to produce something else. And so therefore the question is, and Prabhupada used to sort of give his simple version of it, your father, his father, his father, and so you could say, well, what if the universe has always existed? There's two problems with that. Uh, well, one problem is it doesn't answer the real question. The real question is, why does anything exist? Why does anything exist? Because if there's nothing but contingent things, we could imagine, it's kind of, kind of awful, but we could imagine that nothing ever existed. Nothing ever came into existence. And so if we only have contingent things in this world, why does anything exist? And if you say that, well, it's just, you know, it's like the universe has existed forever, has always been this way, that's a non-explanation. It's not really addressing the issue. If everything depends on something else, where does it all come from? And, and why does anything at all exist? So Aristotle, actually, he didn't call it that, but he gives a form of that because Aristotle uh, is, you know, he's a logician. He is into botany. And you know, like when his most famous student, Aristotle's most famous student was, of course, Alexander the Great. And so therefore, to please his teacher, when Alexander went gallivanting around conquering the world, he brought scientists longer, you know, what they would call that, to, to sort of gather specimens of flora and fauna to send back to Aristotle so he could study them. So Plato is all about the eternal realm. In Plato, this world is just a, a, a perverted reflection of the eternal world. Whereas in Aristotle, this world's cool. So he wants to know about this world. So Aristotle says that basically from the argument for, from contingency, Aristotle says that everything in this world is cause and effect. Something is moving something else, because the Greeks were sort of focused on motion. You know, causality is motion. And, um, and so therefore, uh, there must be an unmoved mover. There must be an original cause of everything that is not caused, which of course is in the Brahma Sangita that um, sarva karna karnam, cause of all causes. Yishra Parama Krishna Satyanda Vigraha, Anadiradi, he's the origin, he has no origin. So basically on logical grounds, Aristotle realizes there must be a God. It's not the kind of God that's really gonna you know, start a religion like you pray to him and he's merciful, it's just a logical necessity, but that's Aristotle. So Aristotle has this unmoved mover. So, so Aristotle, you know, calls his work on material nature, um, physics, and then his students, understanding what he was doing, calls his next book Metaphysics, what's beyond physics. And everybody thought, that sounds right. So everybody went with that. 
And because Aristotle was like, after Aquinas, Aristotle became the philosopher, the explainer of everything for the, for the only church in Europe. Um, that was it. So obviously the relationship between physics and metaphysics was just dandy. They were just two branches of knowledge. It's like, imagine a world in which biologists went to war with uh, psychologists and somehow either, either geology is true or psychology is true. They can't both be true. And that's really stupid. And obviously, if they ever got to that point of imbecility, it would have to be based on psychological reasons, something happened between them that couldn't be based on logical reasons. And the same way, this modern idea like, is science true or is religion true? People back then would just kind of like scratch their heads and what are they talking about? Because they took it for granted that there is physics and metaphysics. In fact, the whole scientific revolution was led people like Copernicus, the great astronomers, Copernicus, Kepler, um, Galileo, uh, and then of course you get Newton, all these people, they were, um, they're all deeply religious. Where did chemistry come from? It came from alchemy actually. I mean, there's a, you know, we call it alchemy and chemistry, but historically it's just really the seamless line where alchemy just develops into chemistry. Anyway, I, I mean, there's a lot I tell about the history, the influence of other pagan cultures like in Egypt and, and Persia and Babylonia and everything, and Hermeticism and the effect it had, and, and, and all these secret societies because it wasn't Catholic. And, uh, it, 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 it goes back to thousands of years ago and all the biggest names in, in, in the, you know, the, the, beginning, the scientific revolution, the biggest names back then in Europe, they were into it. And uh, it had to go underground, so it kind of popped up with other names like Rosicrucians and Wicca and, and all these different things. But anyway, so... So that was a relationship uh, between religion and science, basically. They were just like different departments in the same university. And so what happened is, I said the printing press, and you get these two, you get like this explosive combination, which is printing press, age of exploration. Vasco da Gama, Magalhães, in English they call it Magellan. Anyway, you get all these people, you know, sailing around, discovering the world, making maps. And at the same time they're doing that, there's a printing press. Because it used to be, you had to be really rich to own a, a library. I mean, libraries were for millionaires. Because you had to write the book out by hand. And it cost a lot of money. And so a library was for millionaires. And, or the church, who are the billionaires. So, you know, so that's what, that's who had books. And so since common people uh, couldn't read, I mean, why spend half your annual salary for a book you can't read? Plus, the church, Catholic church, 
had a vested interest in people not reading because no one actually knew what was in the Bible. All they knew was what the priest told them. And what the priest told them was often out there, as they said. And so, and, and as far as the only people that could read or could afford books, which are the nobles and the church, they were in cahoots. They were, that was the power elite. They protected each other because the church said, follow the king. The king said, follow the pope. And they were the power elite. They had all the money. They had all the power. And the last thing they want is the common people, who are most people, just bothering them or getting too smart for their own good. And so it was actually, you could be executed for reading the Bible or for translating. For example, the first person, I forget his name, but he who translated the Bible into English in the 1500s, I forget his name, but he was, it's a great translation. In fact, it became the basis for the King James Bible, which may not be super scholarly in every sense, but it's super English. I mean, those guys knew how to write English. Anyway, so, so the first guy that translated the Bible, uh, Henry VIII, the uh, sociopath, that's when he was still Catholic before he broke away from the church. And so he went after this guy because only priests can read the Bible. I mean, the princes weren't really that interested in the Bible and the priests could read it. So, so this, this man who was a learned guy, he fled to Holland, which was, you know, kind of liberal commercial place and fanaticism is a good business. So he fled to, I think it was Rotterdam or somewhere. So Henry VIII sent secret agents. This is black ops. I mean, nothing has changed. You look at like, you know, the CIA, FBI, the technology is different, but otherwise it's identical. Basically black ops. He sent these secret agents into Holland, found the guy, arrested him, dragged him back to England, put him on trial and executed him for the capital offense of allowing people in general to read the Bible. And so in the church, you had all these sacraments like, okay, you know, the, the wafers, the body of Jesus. And, and that's why Romans thought they were cannibals, by the way. You know, this, you know, the, this wafer or, or this wafer is, is the body of Jesus and the wine is bleeding, all that stuff. And so, and then all these different sacraments and infant baptism, what happened is Luther is actually kind of, this pre-modern, he's this catalyst into the modern world because what characterizes the modern world is individualism, freedom. And Luther starts to say, well, actually, the Bible talks about the priesthood of all people. I won't go into the all men thing. Don't want to get into that, but so, but the priesthood, the priesthood of all people. In other words, everyone should be holy. Everyone should be a priest. And so he starts telling everybody, you have to read the Bible. And he even translates into German, which, by the way, standardized German language. I mean, there was, if you know Europe back then, like every county, what we would call a county, I mean, they're tiny compared to California counties. I mean, every little district. It's almost like every neighborhood had their own German, their own English. I mean, mutually unintelligible. Like in England, for example, you probably couldn't really have a conversation with your neighbors that live 15 miles down the road. 
And so until you get the stand with the printing press, you start to get standardized languages around Europe. And so he standardized the German. People start reading the Bible and they discover two things. Number one, a lot of stuff in the Catholic Church isn't in the Bible. Think there's no West. So a lot of stuff in the scriptures isn't in the Bible. And a lot of this stuff in the church looks suspiciously like magic, which the church says, you know, wasn't good. So they started to, they started to fact check the Vatican. They started to fact check the Vatican. Like, and, and, you know, what does the Bible actually say? And uh, then another problem is that the Bible often is actually radical. I mean, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, destroying your enemies who don't accept the one true religion. So what if the Vatican is bogus? Well, it has to be destroyed. Or in the Bible, the whole prophetic section of the Old Testament have all these great prophets, Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, all these great prophets. And what are they famous for? They speak truth to power. In other words, dude, you may be the king, you may be a big, you may be a big priest, but you're wrong, and you're really wrong, and you're actually a jerk. And so you get this. There's a lot of revolutionary stuff, and you get even in the in the New Testament, you have Jesus talking about like throwing down from their thrones the corrupt kings, and there's all this really combustible stuff in the Old and New Testament. Of course, as long as no one ever read it, it didn't matter. But now people are actually reading this stuff. And the church is just like ridiculously corrupt. Everyone knows it. The church is really corrupt. I mean, there are stories about, you know, the popes sort of sponsoring orgies in the Vatican and, and you know, they owned half the land. Now, if you look at Germany, for example, where, where the Reformation started, if you were a German prince, Sorry about that. But that's the price you pay when you're very popular. Let me just, uh, let me just, uh, other person. Okay, back to our matinee or evening showing. So, um, what's that? Yeah, so if you look at a map of Germany at the time of the Reformation, there's all these little, there's like dozens of little principalities. And the problem was, of course, it's a land-based economy. This is totally pre-industrial. And so basically, uh, you know, if you have a lot of land, you're rich. And if you don't have a lot of land, you're not rich. I mean, there was a trading class. There were these trading towns that were popping up. And so there was kind of a, you know, pre-industrial, there was this new wealth of, of traders but ultimately, the aristocrats, the princes, the nobles, I mean, the really rich people, it was land-based. So even though there was a new wealth coming up, trading class, they were very much subservient to the land-based feudal lords. It was a feudal system, which is land-based. So the problem was that if you were a German prince, probably the Vatican owned at least half if not more, of your kingdom. 
and which means that uh, half or most most of the wealth from your domain was going to Italy. Now, if you suddenly heard a message from God saying, follow Luther, uh, you know, the fact that you would become fabulously wealthy overnight by rejecting the Vatican, I mean, that's not really why I'm doing this. It's really just, it's, you know, totally about my relationship with God. But anyway, a lot of German princes did get a call from God to uh, tremendously increase their wealth and, um, and follow Luther. <laughs> now, what's very interesting about Luther is that he was probably the most unwill, if he would have known of it, the most inadvertent, unintentional, un the most unintentional uh, uh, catalyst for a modernity that you could imagine. Because Luther basically is trying to roll back the Renaissance. He hates the Renaissance. Why? First of all, it's a rebirth of Southern European culture. It's pagan culture. He doesn't want to hear what Aristotle had to say. He doesn't need to read Aristotle. He's got the Bible. And so you get these Protestants who say, and so some of Luther's main slogans were, for example, you'll understand this if you know Spanish, uh, sola scriptura, only scripture, which meant we don't need science, don't need philosophy, pagan philosophy, we just need the Bible. And, and sola fede, only faith. And this is at a time when the Renaissance is saying, you have to understand, this is like, boom, hitting up against the Renaissance. Because the Renaissance, the very word Renaissance, means that we are all about pagan culture. Sure, we're Christians. Yeah, yeah, we're Christians. But we love the architecture. We love the art. We love the sculpture. We love the books. Uh, so they're all about pagan culture. They're in love with pagan culture, but they just Christianize it. Whereas Luther is saying, nope. So, um, so then with that, now what happens? Now the church, the Catholic church has a little problem because it's like, it's not like, oh, I think I lost my car keys. It's more like, whoops, I think I lost that country. You know, when you like losing an entire country can ruin your whole day. And so what happened is countries that were going Protestant or principalities or little kingdoms, not just the modern nation states, you know, they were just, they were just people were uh, mutinying. They were, they were leaving the church, whole countries, whole regions of Europe. And so what happened is because of that, and it was, it was, it was kind of more like this, Interestingly, the reason the church started the witch trials is because in the days when the church was, was a fat and sluggish monopoly and, and, and all, these, all this magic and rituals and rites and everything and alchemy and, and, and in around 1490, I think, they rediscovered hermeticism, which was a huge thing. And so all this non-Christian stuff was pouring in from all over the world, especially because it was the age of exploration and Europe was getting richer. Europe was coming out of the dark ages. They were starting to uh, advance in technology, in, in, uh, in exploration. 
And uh, especially because for probably thousands of years, if you were European, the commercial super highways, like, you know, if, if there's like a road and, you know, that's where all the traffic is, it costs a lot more to buy a store on that road than if you're out in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, just like in a university town, if you want to have a restaurant across the street from the campus, you're going to pay a lot more for that. And so uh, the commercial super highway for thousands of years was the Mediterranean. Because world trade was basically trade between the East and the West. And it, um, so, you know, they have the Silk Road. They've come from China, you know, it would, India would feed into it. And those were the great civilizations. And that, that was like most of the world population. So China and India, and then it would kind of, you know, because of the mountains and the desert and all this stuff, it kind of funnels into uh, Constantinople, modern Istanbul, which is why that's, that's why the Romans put their Eastern empire there, their Eastern capital there because it was a commercial super city. It's like all roads led to Constantinople. And so Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks, Muslims around, the, around that time. And so that's why people were desperate to find a, to, a way to reconnect world trade between the East and West. It's not like, oh, I wish we had spices like they do in the East. You know, they, they were looking for a spice route. The point is, there had been world trade going on for centuries and centuries. And it was, it was, the world trade was interrupted when Constantinople fell to the Turks and they started charging high taxes, which was blocking the road. And so it was just, it was a commercial disaster. It was a commercial disaster. The fall of Constantinople was they needed to find another way to get to the East to resume normal world trade. And so, um, you know, some people went around Africa, like Vasco da Gama. And Columbus, before that, he thought, well, let's just sail around the world. But what happened is when they discovered America, and then South America, and Central America, and Mesoamerica, it turned out there's a lot more money to be made here than in China and India. Because there, you actually have to pay a fair price. Here, we can just kill everyone and take it, which was like, nice so but 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 the fact is that the suddenly world trade started moving away from the mediterranean and into the atlantic and the atlantic ocean became the new commercial superhighway so if you it, it's just like imagine if you put your store on this main road where you get amazing foot traffic and everyone drives by there and suddenly they say they put a freeway in and no one goes down that road anymore. Your business dries up. So the new commercial superhighway was the Atlantic Ocean. But with all this money coming in, um, anyway, so everything, this is all during the time of Lord Chaitanya, by the way. The whole world's changing during the time of Lord Chaitanya. So anyway, so because, so you have this, you have, so this is the point. Because the church had had a monopoly, um, they were kind of lax and easygoing. All this magic was coming in and all kinds, you know, priests, like, like, like your priest, your neighborhood priest could probably tell you some little potion you could make, you know, if you have a cold or, or chant this, you know, abracadabra, like abracadabra, that's not Christian. But, you know, maybe it came from Persia, maybe it came from Babylonia. 
if it came from India or Egypt or wherever it came from. And so Europe was just filled with magic. I mean, think like, like, like a famous movie which really depicts that period in Europe, although it's fiction, but really shows you what Europe was like, of course, is Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is all about magic and spells and this and that. And of course, Harry Potter is just the resurgence of hermeticism and alchemy and magic. It's just, that's literally what it is. It's a resurgence of it. But Lord of the Rings is a fairly accurate picture of what Europe was like when the only religion was the Catholic Church. But it was so filled with magic. And then you get these Protestants coming along. Suddenly, everyone's reading the Bible, fact-checking the Vatican and saying, oh, my God, this is not a true religion because most of the stuff you do isn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And it was because it was like this sort of tough, no-nonsense, individualistic, every person reads the Bible themselves. That means you have to learn how to read. There's a huge uptick in literacy, which led to the scientific revolution also. But anyway, so people start reading, and um, they just want to simplify it. Like Luther is like this really no frills, no lace, no nothing, like German guy. Let's just get down to the basics. You know, it's just your relationship with God, and that's personal and individual. You have to read the Bible, and no one can tell you, and blah, blah, blah. And so you get this really stripped-down, mean machine, these Protestant churches, it's just God, just Jesus, and you, and the rest of the stuff, forget about it. And so in an age which is starting to become more rational because people are reading, and, and you know there were always a lot of people, as many as now back then, that had high IQs. And so they're starting to read. Suddenly intelligent people that don't happen to be nobles or priests can actually read books. And so you have this huge swelling, this huge increase in, in literacy and education, all this is happening, and the idea of a rational Christianity starts to really sound good. A rational, logical Christianity, and just peel off all this magic. So the Catholic Church, trying to show, no, we're not magic, we're really as rational as anybody, that's when they start the witch trials. It's like the best defense is a good offense. So they think, okay, we'll jump in, out in front of the curve, and show people we are the greatest opponents of magic, so let's just go killing witches. Anyway, so all these things, are, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, all these things are happening. And um, so because you have Luther, it says all we need is the Bible, and he's like, a, I mean, he really is a fanatic. He, he had some interesting ideas, but, you know, the kind of thing, like, have you been washing the blood of the lamb? And, and, and basically fanatical Christianity. Uh, he's your man. Actually, at the end of his life, he not the very end, but as he got older, he became a uh, rabid anti-Semite because he'd become so inspired by his own powers in God's service that he thought the only reason that all the Jews didn't accept Jesus is because it wasn't presented to them properly. Right, Martin. Yeah, that's, that's probably the reason all the Jews didn't become Christian. So... So he invited them all to become sort of Lutheran Christians, and for some inexplicable reason, all the Jews didn't follow Luther. I still can't figure that one out. But anyway, so when they didn't follow him, 
he became this sort of foaming at the mouth anti-Semite and uh, he greatly inspired people later on like Hitler. He was another inspiration to Hitler, his anti-Semitism. But anyway, so, so because Luther is kind of like, all we need is faith, all we need is the Bible. Because everybody's saying we have two books. We have the Bible and the book of nature. We have the book of nature. God created the world. God is a supremely rational being, as I was saying. He has given us a spark of his own divine reason. And we live in a logical universe. By the way, all this stuff, you can see, is going straight to a scientific revolution. I mean, think of all this stuff. This is coming from the pagans, their logos theory. It comes into Renaissance Christianity and early modern Christianity, and it's a perfect theology for science. That God is not this fanatical, basically, psychopath that eternally, eternally, that's a very long time, eternally tortures his own children if they commit even relatively minor theological mistakes. And imagine that. Like, okay, imagine devotees, okay, you're my kid, I love you, but you didn't pass the Bhakti Shastri test, so I'm gonna have to torture you forever. Forever. I mean, for millions of years, you can be screaming out to me for mercy, and I'm gonna keep torturing you forever because you didn't pass the Bhakti Shastri test. I mean, that's, does that sound crazy? I mean, it sounds, it, 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 this is really psychopathy, you know, the, the psychopaths. And so, so because they had this only the Bible, only this, and so therefore the church would it actually it would actually have been a patron of the new science. Because for, you have to remember the priests, you know, the bishops and the cardinals, they were the most educated people in Europe. I mean, ever since the Dark Ages, ever since the fall of Rome, it was the priests in the abbeys and monasteries that preserved literacy. They were they were they were the scholars. And so, for example, I mean, scientists will never tire of telling us about the trial of Galileo. What they won't tell you is that the Pope, who, you know, who finally, that, that what happened is that there was this, I mean, I can look at the names, but there's a Pope, Urban VIII or something. He was, before he became Pope, he was a friend of Galileo. And when Galileo was first condemned to house arrest, they didn't burn the stake. When he's first condemned to house arrest, this person, who then I think it was maybe a cardinal, he opposed it. He was, on, he was on Galileo's side. He said, no, you shouldn't punish Galileo. We need this kind of free thinking. And he actually, in Galileo, part of his punishment in the first trial was he was forbidden to publish books. But the new pope, because he was, you know, they were besties, you know, the new pope said to Galileo, hey, write a book. And of course, the hot topic was, is the world geocentric or heliocentric? Did the planets go around the sun or the earth? And there's arguments on both sides. I mean, now, of course, the, we know the preponderance of evidence is on the heliocentric model, but, but still, he invited, he basically rescinded a major part of Galileo's punishment. He was a friend of Galileo. He had opposed the punishment of Galileo and invited him to publish a book. So what does Galileo do? Uh, not, a, you know, he was a great scientist in some ways, didn't get really good scores on emotional IQ. 
So Galileo, in his book, he does what was common then. He puts it in the form of a dialogue or, uh, you know, just various people just talking to each other. And it was a common genre, literary genre back then. And so he has one character called Simplicio, which meant a simpleton. In other words, someone who's really dumb. And, and the, the Pope had asked him, maybe in your book, you can also include some of my views. Because the Pope, there was a Pope who was a scholar who appreciated Galileo, who opposed the punishment of Galileo, the trial of Galileo, and asked him to write a book. So what does Galileo do? He has this character called Simplicio, like, you know, the dummy. And this guy, Simplicio, is one that makes all these stupid arguments. And he has Simplicio be the voice of the Pope. Giving everyone the impression the Pope is a dummy. And this is his friend who's trying to help him. So, you know, it was game over, Galilee. It was game over because, you know, if you have a high position and if people stop believing you or think you're a fool, you know, your whole civilization collapses. And so he said, that's it. So Galileo, actually, if you would have had, you know, a little tiny spoonful of common sense, would have actually gone free eventually and could have practiced science. But scientists will never tell you that because it sounds better to say that, you know, religion is evil and science is, is sort of is martyred by evil religion. That's actually the story. So because the Protestants were gaining ground and they just wanted the Bible, the Catholic, the political center was pulled over to the right. In other words, the church could no longer sort of indulge this ocean of magic, which was in the church. You know, they had to kick all that up. They couldn't indulge all this new science because if they did, they were losing debating points to the Protestants. So the Protestants kind of pulled. So anyway, so the, so the relationship between science and religion really got bad. And of course, all the universities were controlled by the church. There were no secular universities. And, uh, and then in the 1600s, you have the, uh, the age of science. That's when really the scientific revolution, the age of reason, the age of science, you get uh, foundational figures like uh, Sir uh, Francis Bacon, who kind of reinvents the scientific method that we still use today. You have um, Descartes, who is like, I mean, Descartes, invented a lot of advanced mathematics. I mean, you couldn't have a digital world. I mean, a lot of the math that's done in modern science and even digital science actually goes back to Descartes. So the guy was really smart. And he, of course, you know, coach you do ever assume, I think, therefore I am. He tries to prove there's a soul, tries to prove there's God. So, so you get these, but, but Descartes, if you read the introduction to his meditations, which is where he says, I think, therefore I am, and gives a proof for the soul and a proof for God. If you read those meditations, what you find is he goes out of his way to assure the Sorbonne, which was, that was the main school in France, obviously, you know, under the control of Vatican. So he, and, and it's the fathers, like, like the, the great theologians, the great doctors, academic leaders of the Sorbonne who are going to judge Descartes' work and decide whether it's heresy or whether it's okay and all that. So if you read the introduction to his meditations, he really goes out of his way to say, look, 
we all know that there's a God. We all know that Jesus is, you know, the Trinity and all that. We know that. But there's some idiots out there that don't accept this obviously divine revelation. And so it's for those fools out there, I have to speak their language. So I'm just going to give it to them without faith, without scripture. I'm just going to logically show them because that's the only language they speak, which is interesting. It means that even in the 1600s, there were a significant number of intellectuals that didn't buy all this fanaticism. And of course, also, you know, it wasn't lost on Descartes that other great thinkers had been burned at the stake by Giordano Bruno. And, you know, Descartes was not on the movie to be burned at the stake. And anyway, so he says all that. And so Descartes, because what had happened is Galileo had basically he blew up Aristotelian cosmology because Aristotle's thing was that there's, you know, like there's like heavenly worlds and everything goes around the earth. Then you had Copernicus, by the way, Copernicus, the reason the church actually asked Copernicus to figure out what's up there in the heavens, because um, they were all using Ptolemaic astronomy, Ptolemy's astronomy going back to Egypt, you know, and basically he was, sort of a descendant of the general, a general of Alexander the Great, who conquered Egypt. And so he was just a Greek guy, you know, in, in Alexandria. And so he figured out this astronomy, like how all the planets go around the earth, all the stars, sun, everything goes around the earth. And he, he was a genius mathematician. And he did such a good job that actually no one really bothered thinking about it again for over a thousand years because the math was really great. The only problem is that his calculation of how much time a day is, it's like, I forget, it's 11 seconds or a minute or 11 minutes. It was a little off. I mean, not by much. And so therefore, after a thousand years passed, uh, the church couldn't figure out when Easter was. And they couldn't figure out when Christmas was. They actually couldn't figure it out. because the... And so the church went to Copernicus and said, could you figure this out? We need more precise calculations. Copernicus had a personal reason. He thought that if, uh, this is a great Copernican revolution, that if we have more accurate uh, calculation of planetary motion, we can do a lot better astrology. So Copernicus actually wanted to get more efficient astrology. So if you look at the scientific revolution, it's not like nowadays, like, you know, there's nothing but matter. It's exactly the opposite. But anyway, so... Um, so now what I'm saying is that uh, that um, we have to go back to that. What, for example, was called the Newtonian synthesis. Newton spent most of his time actually doing alchemy and doing kind of hermetic projects. And that's where you get, by the way, hermetically sealed, because they say that Hermes, the original founder, figured out how to seal the containers through scientific experiments. But anyway, so um, all these people. I mean, Robert. Uh, Boyle, B-O-Y-L, was a friend of Newton, considered the first chemist in the modern sense, not just alchemist. He was totally into alchemy. I mean, he was, if you actually look at the scientific revolution, all these scientists, and, and going into the 1700s, and even 1800s, 1900s, they were, uh, they were religious. What's it, Tycho Brahe? Tycho Brahe was a Danish noble that, that uh, gave, he actually made, calculations of planetary motion 
five times more accurate than anyone had done. And, you know, he was religious. And he was a guy who was actually a friar. It was, um, one of them was actually a priest. He's a great scientist. So, anyway, so historically, uh, and they were inspired. For example, Copernicus was inspired by Plato. And, and that's how he figured out that the earth goes around the sun. He was, he was thinking in platonic terms of the sun is because Plato talks about the sun, you know, the great the symbol of light, the symbol of everything. So actually, Copernicus put his money on a heliocentric solar system because he thought it matches what Plato said. And if you look at all these people, they, they not only were scientists and they were religious, their religion actually inspired them. That's what inspired them with the idea that we live in a lawful universe. The universe is not chaotic, ultimately. It's governed by laws. Why? Because it's made by a supremely rational being. And that's why it's governed by laws. And because God has put that divine reason within us, therefore we can figure out, we can decipher how the universe works. The reason we can figure it out, because God made it in a logical way and the same logic is within us. And that's why every, you know, all these branches of science are called ologies, physiology, biology, geology, and all that. Why? It was all based on logos theory, on the idea of divine reason and the mind of God being communicated to his creatures. And then those creatures using that logos to discover the logos in the natural world. And so how science became atheistic and what actually have that, that's a whole story, which I can't have time for now. But that, you know, that gets into the, for one thing, I'll just give you a few little tidbits of how science became atheistic. It started where all good ideas start in France. And um, what happened is that England was way ahead of France. That's not just because I speak English. In the sense that in England, they're, 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 they had the glorious revolution of 1689, where they actually deposed a Catholic monarch because he was a Catholic, James II. They, they didn't want any more fanatical Catholics because the Catholics had actually colluded. This is real collusion. This is not fake news. The um, actually colluded with the Pope to overthrow the Protestant king of England, and that was high treason. And, and in fact, there had been a law that any Catholic priest who came to England from, from Europe and was found to be teaching would be executed. So they're very serious because in 1588, the Spanish Armada, the largest military fleet in the history of the world, under, with, with, with innumerable blessings from the Pope, of course, cow dung and all the ships. Just anyway, the Spanish Armada attacked England and, and they would have obliterated England. I mean, literally, England was spared by, that's a whole other story, why the Spanish Armada didn't conquer England. But anyway, so, I mean, England had attacked they, 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 that, that the, under the Pope, the Pope's armies through Spain had attacked Holland to get rid of all the Protestants. So it was, I mean, England was fighting for its life against Vatican-inspired armies. And so, um, what was I getting to before that? I was... Oh, so, so, so in France, though, they it didn't work. In France, they had a Catholic monarchy. And not only did they have a Catholic monarch, this is, this is really the, the seeds of the French Revolution and everything that led up to it. 
The French monarch happens to be my friend and yours, Louis XIV, the absolutist monarch the, the, who built Versailles. He was asked, like, what's your system of government by an ambassador? He, you know, famously said, l'état, c'est moi. The state, it's me. He was an absolutist monarchy. No Magna Carta, no sharing of power, not as it used to be in Europe, primo entre pares, the, first, the king is the first among equals, among nobles. He's an absolutist monarch, absolute power. And uh, so politically, you had this totalitarian regime and then that completely colluded with the Catholic Church. And they had, they had actually Protestantism, Calvinism, because Calvin was in Geneva, which is right there sticking into, you know, into the middle of southern France. And so you had a significant Calvinist, you had a significant Protestant community in France. And so there was a whole neighborhood in Paris that was Protestant. So one day the king, they just, this is even before Louis IV, they just sent in the army, sealed off the neighborhood and killed everyone, you know, men, women, and children. And they even had some of the Edict of Nantes. Because of all this fighting, they had this Edict of Nantes which I think at the end of the 1500s, which was a, a, an agreement between the French uh, throne and the Protestants that they could have rights in France, they could live in peace, they wouldn't be killed, but just, you know, stay out of our way. So that was called the Edict of Nantes, which guaranteed Protestants in, Protestants in France, they could just stay alive and just live in France. And so Louis XIV revoked that. He revoked the Edict of Nantes. So if you were a Protestant in France, you had no rights at all. And then so you have, you have this fanatical church, you have this fanatical, and so what happened is, in France, where you have all these intellectuals, it's the pendulum effect. They get radicalized, and for them, even Newton, because Newton was very religious, or at least very spiritual, they don't even want Newton. Why? Because Newton is religious. Sir Isaac Newton is religious. And anything religious just empowers our enemies. Because the church, they're like the caretakers of God in France. And so therefore, they become radicalized. It's, it's like they become the equal and opposite extreme. As absolutist, as fanatical, as extremist as the church and the throne were in France, they became the equal and opposite extreme atheistic, hating religion. In the French Revolution, they killed the priests. And so, whereas in England, you have this Newtonian synthesis where everybody's getting along, and you have moderate politics, you actually start to have constitutional government, you have religious freedom, and, and because of that, that's why the Industrial Revolution happens in England, and that's why England you know, keeps winning the wars against France and becomes the richest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world because they're the ones who are doing the most to promote science and reason and ingenuity and invention. Whereas in France, they, you know, they don't want Newton. They don't even, and the French nobles don't want the Industrial Revolution because the traditional power base of the nobles is land. They live on the land. And it's the lower classes that build factories. They don't want an Industrial Revolution because they don't want to enrich the lower classes. So France pushes back, you know, the leaders push back. And, and, and so in that atmosphere, the intellectuals in France are going crazy. It's going nuts. 
They can't get jobs in universities. You know, Voltaire, what does Voltaire do? He goes to England. And so they can't get jobs in universities. They're just totally shut down. And so you start to get this extremely radical, atheistic, hateful, uh, intellectual underground. And finally, it just explodes into the French Revolution, which was awful. But, the, but the, that mood, and so, so this idea of religion as the enemy of science, religion as the enemy of a rational life, religion as dogmatic, as fanatical, religion is just, it's just the enemy of, of, of just human reason. It really comes from France. And then the next thing, so, so how do you get, you know, Darwin's bulldog in England, you know, Thomas Huxley, is because science starts to get so much power and so much credibility that they be, the same thing happens to them that happened to the church. Power corrupts. They become as corrupt and as fanatical as the old medieval church used to be. And they start denying, they start saying, you know, and, and then the modern manifestation is a complete bozo the clown like that guy Dawkins who, as I always say, uh, breaks the first rule of scholarship, which is you don't speak outside your area of expertise. That's the quickest way to make an ass out of yourself in academics, is start talking about things you haven't really studied. That's not your field, isn't it? And so he hasn't studied theology, philosophy of religion, history of religion, sociology, religion. he talks about it all the time. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Anyway, so, I'm going to talk about, I just gave you a sort of a, I'm going to obviously have to really cut this down, but that's, this is just like the half of it. And then what happened is science is on a roll. I'll just finish it real quickly. Science is on this big roll. They're just taking over. They have the power. They start to control the schools. It's not like before that unless you're part of the church establishment, you can't teach in a university. Now it's the opposite. If you are religious, you can't teach in a university. Payback. And so what happens is science becoming more and more powerful. They seem to just have all the answers to everything. And just like all the sciences and all the different fields of study used to be called handmaidens to theology. Theology, the science of God, as taught by the church, that was the center of knowledge and education. And if you were in any other field, you were just serving that. And which is, frankly, that's what Iskand does. You know, the real knowledge is Bhagavad Gita and Srinath Bhagavatam. So if you're a geologist or if you're a you know, biologist or if you're a historian, you're just trying to use it in Christian service. So all the different fields of knowledge, same thing in, the, in, 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 ancient, in Europe, not ancient, but medieval Europe and early modern and, and even the Renaissance, that all the fields of knowledge were meant to serve theology. But then it, gets, it flips. And now religion is just a branch of academics because everything is material. Everything is deterministic. Everything is like science, even though human beings have free will, and therefore psychology is not a hard science. It's a soft science. Sociology is a soft science because you can't, because you can only have a hard science when everything's deterministic, when everything is predictable, necessary causes and effects. But you can't have predictable, necessary causes and effects when you're studying people that have free will. And so therefore, in this attempt to colonize religion, and subjugate religion, uh, they come out with these crazy ideas that actually we don't really have free will 
And if you knew enough about neurology and if you knew enough about psychology, you could predict what people would do. And actually consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. It's sort of like something that burped out of, you know, your, your neurological system. It's also material. And so you get this, you, just like the church, fanatical church tried to colonize and subjugate everything and everyone. Now, then you had science doing the same thing, trying to subjugate everyone. And you may think you're talking about a soul, you may think you're talking about God, but you're really just a branch of material science. Maybe psychology, maybe psychopathology, which by the way, was that's what, that's what Freud called it, psychopathology, that's what religion is. You didn't have a good relationship with your father, so you project this big father up in the sky. So anyway, it's, um, so all these things are going on, but then what happens, then something else happens. Just when science things like it just, it owns everything and there's all these predictions and prophecies, the end of religion, the end of all this stuff, they hit a brick wall called quantum mechanics. Because you've heard of the wave particle problem. And that is, it's, and just very briefly, when, it's just like, let's say for example, you're walking, let's say I wanna see how long it takes you to walk across a football field, 100 yards, and I'm timing you. Obviously, the fact that I'm watching you, or if no one's watching you, it makes no difference in terms of the basic physics of it. You're going at this speed, this distance, so, you know, it's, right? It's middle school math. But what happens, by the way, quantum mechanics means subatomic physics. Uh, that means things that are smaller than atoms subatomic particles. So subatomic physics is quantum mechanics. The problem is that when you watch these little subatomic particles like photons and, neutron, uh, and electrons, by the way, that's what the word electronic means, electrons. So actually one of the benefits of quantum mechanics was electronics. So if I say something wrong, correct me and then I will curse you. But I mean, it'll ruin your life, but that's okay. It's the price you have to pay. So, so the problem is that when you look at these particles, they behave differently than when you don't look at them, isn't it? And they've tried every, I mean, believe me, the most brilliant genius physicists in the world for almost 100 years have been trying to figure this out and they can't. They just hit a wall. They hit a wall. Because then you think back of all the magic which they rejected, which said that mind over matter, right? That was the whole thing they rejected, that it's really about why is there a physical world at all? Because the mind of God, that above all physical things is consciousness. And they're like, they just threw that out. That's magic, it's nonsense. This primitive superstition has no place in the modern world. Suddenly, the most sophisticated branch of physics, minds are changing the way material particles behave. And, uh, right? And they can't figure it out. And then, and then what's his name? Uh, the, uh, the uncertainty principle. It starts with an H, what's his name? You know, everyone knows. Uh, 
everyone. He's very famous. Heisenberg. Yeah. So what Heisenberg Heisenberg showed mathematically that you cannot figure this out because just the way it is, the more you know about the location of a particle, the less you know about its velocity. And the more you know about its velocity, the less you know about its location. And I'm not a quantum physicist, but somehow or other, he convinced everyone that it's just, it's just, it's baked in the cake. You can't fix it. It's called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And then in the 1920s, the most famous quantum physicist in the world, Niels Bohr, who's like, you know, is like almost like a, uh, like a Newton figure. I and mean, Niels Bohr and Heisenberg himself, they asked meeting in Copenhagen. And they came to this thing called the Copenhagen understanding. In other words, this is how we understand quantum physics because it was just so like magical. This is how we understand. And what they said is that physics, and they said this 100 years ago, it hasn't filtered down yet to all the knuckle-dragging pseudo-intellectuals down here. But what they said almost 100 years ago is that physics no longer claims a one-to-one -one correspondence. They use the word correspondence, which is picked up by postmodernism. We no longer claim precise correspondence between our equations, our descriptions, and what's really out there. All we can say is the equations work, the math works, you know, you get a computer, you get electronic things. Yeah, that's, that's all we can say is that it helps us to calculate certain things that have uh, valuable applications, you know, applied science. And that's all we can say. We no longer claim that this is a description of what the real world is. And what's interesting is that Einstein, Einstein rejected that idea. I mean, he rejected the idea. I mean, he didn't reject the idea that they couldn't figure it out. He knew they couldn't figure it out. But what Einstein said, and this is where he broke with quantum mechanics. He accepted quantum mechanics, but he said that, that's when he said God doesn't play dice you know, with the universe. What he's saying is that a ultimately the best possible scientific theory will in fact correspond to an objective world. It will describe the real world. And if right now you have a theory which doesn't describe the real world, you can't figure out whether it's a wave or a particle. It's just, and plus they had, they had another problem. What, what do you call that, that, that remote communication? They call it non-locality. Yeah, entanglement, non-locality. But what they found is that there's like, what is it? Electrons have positive and negative charges, isn't it? And so, and so what is the positive? Is the protons. So they, okay, if you have two particles. So if you have two particles, if you have, if you have two particles and one's negative and one's positive, uh, you know, if the other one becomes positive, the other one becomes negative. Alert from system UI server. Oh. In other words, the particles affect each other. They, 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 and, and so what they found is you can take particles and put them like, you know, like 10 miles apart, and they still do that. That particles that are 10 miles apart, and you can measure there's no, you know, energy going between them. They're just 10 miles apart. 
like the tiniest little subatomic particles 10 miles apart are communicating with each other constantly. And every time one, because you can change the charge on a particle, right? So every time you flip the charge, the other one flips. So they're actively communicating with each other over a fairly long period of time and they're 10 miles apart. What's that? Spin, yeah. Okay, the spin, well, okay. The spin, thank you. It's a good thing I'm telling this for Florida. Okay, it's the spin, everybody out there. And so, and so therefore, it's starting to get like, almost like this voodoo science. You know, like when you look at it, it's a particle, when you don't look, it's a wave. That, that they, you know, these two tiny, I mean, tiny little particles are actually talking to each other, and they're 10 miles apart. And so that's when you started to get these books coming out, like the Dancing Wooly Masters and the Zen of you know, Motorcycle Repair. So you got all these books in the 60s because the people started to realize, hey, this is like Buddhism. This is Zen. And so there was like, it became a fad for a while, like comparing Buddhism, Zen to quantum mechanics. But they just hit this wall and they can't get past that wall. And they can no longer claim they know what the universe really looks like at a subatomic level. And the last thing I'm going to say, because my battery's running out and I got to work to, that the point I'm going to make, so I'll pass it on you, is that ultimately it doesn't matter. Because the universe is teleological. Telos in Greek means a purpose or a goal. In other words, a simple example I always give, let's say you go to a museum, look at a beautiful painting. Uh, so you ask a simple question, who really understands that painting? Is it a qualified art historian, or is it a chemist that knows about paint? Now, according to modern science, it's not the art historian, it's the chemist, which is absurd. Because the painting is teleological. In other words, someone made it for a purpose. The, the, the reason to say the sky is orange in this painting is because the artist wanted you to see an orange sky. It's not orange because it has certain chemicals the chemicals are there because of the artist's intention. So it's not orange because of the chemicals. The chemicals are there because of the intention. And so therefore, it's like, for example, I'm not into computer uh, engineering. I'm seriously not into it. And so when I turn my computer on, if, if, if the screen comes on and I can do my work, and if you say to me, do you want to know how that's happening? No, please don't tell me. So I'll probably get a headache. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. I admire the people that do it. I'm grateful to them. Do I want to know about it? No, I just want my computer to work. And if I'm in a museum looking at a great work of art and someone says, hey, you want to know about the chemistry? Uh, I don't think so. So in the same way, you know, wave, particle, wavicle, as some people say now, it actually doesn't matter unless for your own amusement, you're interested in those things or because you want to you know, do applied science, make a lot of money you know, with applied science. But in terms of basically, when you look up at the sky and it's blue, it was meant to be blue. God made it blue because that's what, that was his artistic sensitivity. And so when you look at a blue sky, uh, that's the reality of it. It's not that the reality of it is atmospheric science, refracted sunshine. No, that's just the nuts and bolts. That's just the machinery of it. I don't wanna, I really have no interest in paint chemistry, but I do find art interesting. 
So in the same way, why is the sky blue? Because God made it that way, because it was an artistic choice. And so that's what's really important about the sky, finding God in the sky, understanding his artistic decisions. That's what's most important about the sky. And all the atmospheric science is valuable for applied science. And it's interesting for people to just have that kind of intellectual curiosity. But in terms of coming to the deepest understanding of why the sky is blue, it's kind of irrelevant. Unless it's just like Newton, we can agree with Newton. It's, it's just an opportunity to admire that God's a real brainiac, you know, and then he can make stuff like that. So anyway, that's a very, that's a, like a very quick little synopsis of my thing. <laughs> vote for a Chinese is a vote for sound theology. Okay, I'd like to thank everyone out there in Facebook land. Uh, thank you for hanging in there. I hope uh, you followed all this stuff. And uh, may all your chapatis be buttered. <laughs> Sorry. If you had to all this intellectual stuff, you'd get pretty silly too. Okay, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. And...